welcome back to a new episode of For the Love of Weather podcast. This is the podcast where we discuss all things weather and how they can impact our daily lives. We hope that you leave this episode and every episode that you listen to loving the weather just that little bit more. Hi, I'm meteorologist Gemma. Hello, I'm meteorologist and weather presenter Ashling. And today we have our very first guests on all things explosive. We have Thomas Aubrey here with us. He is a lecturer at the Department of Earth and Environmental Sciences at the University of Exeter. His primary research is incredibly interesting. Physical volcanology, I didn't even know there was such a thing, climate scientists and any questions that cross over the two topics that's right up our street. Thomas, welcome to the podcast tonight. Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate your time. My very first question to you is, when was the moment that you thought, mm, I'm probably going to go and study things that explode? Uh, I'm going to be quite disappointing. There was actually no such moment uh, at all. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my childhood dream was to be uh, to study cetacean, um, orcas and whales and dolphins. Uh, but just happened I was terrible, terrible at biology, uh, but I was decently good, I guess, at math and physics. Uh, and so I ended up doing climate science. Uh, and then at the end of my master's degree in climate science, I was like, okay, sure. Uh, you know, I took a different path, but I still want to see all these whales and forecasts. And so I decided to do my PhD uh, in Vancouver because it was one of the hotspots for marine wildlife. Um, so my PhD decision, number one factor was not topical, was, okay, find something in Vancouver. Uh, and there just happened to be a, a nice professor there doing all sorts of things related to her senses, including volcanoes. And that's kind of how I started to mix my climate research with volcanology research. And, and I've stayed there uh, in the meantime. Um, so yeah, no, no big volcano <laughs> childhood story there I'm afraid sorry about that uh, I did see the Hawkas uh, I might even have seen Hawkas with volcanoes in the background because uh, the Pacific Northwest has lots of volcanoes uh, but yeah have you seen an erupting volcano um depends what you mean by erupting um is this uh, where we get into the technical already of what exactly no. erupting means? Whenever I say I'm a volcanologist, um, you know, people picture uh, this super badass guy going on the field, big backpack, the cookie hat, lots of equipment. I'm the computer geek who uh, model volcano uh, work. I do hike volcanoes a lot during my holiday just because there are certain places uh, to hike. Um, and but so far I haven't I'm trying to convince my field colleagues to take me out but it it hasn't happened yet because COVID hasn't helped um but yeah hopefully someday so Not tell yet. us a little bit about studying volcanoes and numbers what does that look like you know how do you, are you modeling physics are you modeling the weather are you modeling plate tectonics? like what exactly are you modeling where are you modeling it as well uh, yes, so where uh, is right here <laughs> on my laptop. Uh, and what I'm, I'm modeling, so I'm mostly interested in uh, above ground processes. Uh, so if you ask to a lot of volcanologists, me not doing field work and me not looking at anything below ground, uh, a lot of people would not call me a volcanologist. Uh, but so I'm interested in the processes that happen 
after a volcano explodes. Uh, so I'm just an explosive eruption that produces this colon of ash and gas uh, that rise in the atmosphere. So I'm interested in all the process that govern the rise of this colon, the dispersion in the atmosphere, uh, and then the long-term impact of uh, volcanic gases on climate. Uh, and by long-term here, I mean just a few years uh, in general, so uh, just for context. So what impact does volcanic eruptions have on the climate? Uh, well, if you go straight to the climate, they have uh, lo lots of different impacts on the climate. But the main one, if you have a, a big eruption today that erupts a lot of uh, sulfur gases, sulfur is the main gases we are interested in in terms of climate impact. And if these sulfur gases are sent high enough into the atmosphere, uh, then the main impact would be a cooling of the planet for uh, a few years, typically two to three years. Um, and the main reason is that uh, these sulfur gases, once in the atmosphere, uh, they get oxidized uh, and uh, water condenses on them and they form tiny droplets that we call aerosol. And this aerosol uh, essentially reflects sunlight back to space, which reduces a bit the incoming energy at Earth's surface and the cooling effect. How much could the climate be cooled by by one of these eruptions? And how big would one of these eruptions have to be to have that impact on the climate? Yeah, yeah, good question. Uh, so how much, you know, it depends what time scale uh, we are talking about, because if you are interested in the eruption that will occur in the next 100 years, it's extremely unlikely that uh, a completely cataclysmic Cataclysmic eruption is going to happen. Um, so most eruption will cool climate by 0.000 something degrees Celsius to maybe a few tenths of degrees Celsius. So the Mount Pinatubo eruption in 1991 cool climate by about 0.4, 0.5 degrees Celsius for a couple of years. But you know, when when we say a few tenths of degrees Celsius, it doesn't sound like a lot. But if you think about the Paris agreements, uh, it's 1.5 degrees Celsius, right? So cooling by 0.4 degrees Celsius is, is a big deal uh, in terms of climate, especially when we talk at global scale. Uh, the trick though is that these aerosol particles, uh, they fall out from the atmosphere, uh, kind of, you know, like a rain droplet, except they are lighter, uh, so they stay for longer. Uh, but after, after a few years, they are just gone uh, from the atmosphere. So that cooling is really uh, temporary compared to, say, the effect of greenhouse gas emission from humans. You mentioned 1991 as the last event of a volcanic eruption. Do we have any more recent or any more records, let's say, in the last 100 years of something more significant happening that did cause any change in the climate? Uh, yes, yes, we do. And uh, before answering that part of the question, maybe I will clarify that uh, the Pinatubo eruption in 1981 is the last eruption for which we could really like detect the footprint of that one individual eruption in the climate signal. Uh, there have been a lot of eruptions since uh, that have injected gases high enough in the atmosphere in what we call the stratosphere. That's where these aerosols can stay. Uh, for a few years because it doesn't rain in the, in the stratosphere. Anyway, so lots of disruption, but they, they injected less gases, but also the smaller the eruption, the more frequent they have. 
So collectively, they also do cool climate. It's just a lot harder to detect the footprint of one individual eruption in a climate record because there are a lot more of them and they have a much smaller impact. Uh, but when we do look further back into the past, uh, yes, we do have records of eruption much larger than Pinatubo, like Tambora in 1815, uh, or Samaras in 1257. So these were eruptions that were roughly 10 times bigger than Pinatubo, uh, and that did cool climate by closer to one uh, degree Celsius. Um, and we know about these eruptions uh, from the geological record, uh, obviously they left a lot of uh, devastation around, but we can also measure uh, the sulfur gases in the ice core. Uh, so if we call ice at the core, we can record uh, concentration of past gases, uh, and that include aerosols that were deposited uh, at the core, volcanic aerosols that were deposited at the core. So each time there's a big eruption in the climate system, we see a big peak in uh, sulfur gas concentration in the ice cores. So you, so that was three, three eruptions, and the one in twelve fifty seven is is thought to have cooled the atmosphere by one degree. Is it too simple to say then that a volcanic eruption might help the climate cool right now? No, it's not too simple. Uh, I don't say that. Um, so first, I get few examples, but there, there have been a lot more big eruption with individual climate footprint. Uh, but no, if, if there was a volcanic eruption happening tomorrow, uh, most likely it would it would cool the climate, uh, and if it was big enough, it would cool the climate by yeah a few tenths or degrees Celsius. Uh, the key thing, though, again, is that these effects are temporary; they last just a few years. Um, and actually, that's the kind of uh, thing that uh, that I can do behind my computer uh, with simulation is I can look at the statistics of how frequent and how big eruption have been in the past uh, and then make up different scenarios for the future, scenarios where maybe, you know, by luck, we, I mean, by luck, statistically, we won't get a lot of eruptions, like where we get a lot of eruption. Uh, and look at how much it would cool the climate system. And essentially, no matter how many volcanic eruptions there is in the next uh, 80 years or uh, 100 years, uh, you know, it would never be enough to compensate uh, whatever warming uh, we get from greenhouse gas emission. You mentioned a little bit on your page about yourself, about emerging sciences. I had to actually Google the word to see what it meant. Nascent. Nascent science. Okay. So emerging science, nascent sciences. I'm really, okay. cu really curious. Can you tell us a little bit more about your nascent research group? Uh, so it, it might be that nascent is some English here. Uh, it's quite common that I think I'm using an English word, but it's actually a French word that I made some English. Uh, and in that context, I mean, I just started my university position. Uh, eight months ago now. So my research group is very much under construction. I don't know, it's just uh, me, a PhD student, and uh, two brilliant master students. Um, but yeah, from next September onwards, I will be joined by two other PhDs, which should be quite exciting. So and what are you going to do? So the nascent is not about the research, it's, it's about the group. The research will be very boring. And <laughs> okay. Uh, and we are just going to um, 
you know, keep working on atmospheric volcanic processes, meaning how these volcanic gases affect climate, how the volcanic plume rise into the atmosphere. Um, and then another question I'm interested in is not how uh, volcanoes affect climate, but how climate affect uh, volcanoes and volcanic process, um, which is quite like, you know, uh, topical, obviously, because of the pace at which climate is currently changing. So do you think it, do, it affects it the other way around? Yes, we, we know there are effects the other way around. Uh, we, we do have evidence for it uh, from the past, uh, again. So, for example, when we look at the frequency of volcanic eruption uh, in places like Iceland or Chile, uh, after deglaciation in the past, uh, tens or two hundreds of thousands years ago, uh, we see an increase in eruption frequency and magnitude. And that's just because where there were ice caps uh, previously sitting at the top of uh, volcanic systems, as the ice melts uh, and go away, the pressure on top of the magma chamber essentially reduces, and that increases eruption frequency and magnitude. Is there a name for that? Um, volcano deglaciation feedback, maybe? I'm not sure there is a name. Um, I think you've just made one. That sounds really awesome. Yeah, let, let's let's call it that. <laughs> so one uh, lucky thing for us in the context of climate change is that uh, it takes hundreds of years for volcanic systems to respond to these changes in uh, surface loading, meaning how much mass sits on top of them, usually as a consequence of either glaciation or sea level rise. Uh, could be a volcanic island and uh, in the tropic and sea levels are all this high. But anyway, even if you melt Antarctica or Greenland today, you wouldn't expect to see changes in uh, high latitude volcanic uh, rate for at least a few hundred years. But you would expect to see a change in a few hundred years. But long term, years. you would definitely expect to see a change, yes. Wow. That's pretty I've never heard that. Island. I've never heard no. that before. I didn't know anything about that. That's um, that's really interesting. And is that that's what the research is going to be going forward then? So that uh, yeah, so I mean that's just one example of uh, you know a very well known mechanism of how climate uh, affect volcanic eruption. Uh, so I don't work directly on these processes. Uh, mm. What I'm working on is whether changes in temperature and wind uh, and atmospheric composition could affect the way volcanic rise and then the way their aerosol are dispersed into the atmosphere and how efficiently they could connect. Uh, so that's that's the sort of research question uh, I'm asking at the moment. Yeah, I didn't know uh, any of that. That's really interesting. It's a whole new area now. Mm. We always leave these podcasts with like new things we need to go and research. And now I need to go and do massive amounts of research know, on this. Like, this is I so know. interesting. I didn't even know I didn't know this. And now I know that I don't know it. <laughs> it, is, it is pretty fascinating though. I, I, you know, I mean, I read a lot of climate papers um, mm -hmm. uh, through weather though. So I've never quite, I didn't, I didn't, I've never seen anything on that type of research. That's really interesting. Yeah, well, most of the research is obviously focused on how volcanic eruption uh, affects climate, uh, which is fair. Uh, but 
until recently, the main research on how climate affect volcanoes was on uh, on this deglaciation, volcanic eruption uh, processes. Uh, but because of climate change, there are more people thinking about this kind of process and more uh, either, uh, yeah, evidence or modeling work emerging. So, for example, I have a colleague who is looking how at how extreme precipitation e event uh, can trigger volcanic eruption, um, and we project an increase in extreme precipitation event in many places on Earth uh, as uh, as Earth warms. Uh, so there's this question of whether that could also trigger more volcanic activity uh, in the future. Uh, and this one has no time delay uh, associated with it. So, um, so if suddenly some volcanic system are exposed to uh, more frequent extreme precipitation, uh, you might expect an increase of uh, volcanic activity or hazard going along with that. Why would that be the case? Is there a reason for that? Yeah, so there are, there are different uh, type of processes at play. So I'm, I'm not an expert here, uh, but essentially when you have water infiltrating a magma chamber, uh, it can, um, I think it can help uh, help the magma make its way to the surface uh, uh, and increase the explosivity of a, of a magmatic system. Uh, another one that's really uh, that doesn't directly involve triggering an eruption is related to what we call lahars. So lahars are these um, uh, mud flows, uh, but volcanic mud flows. Uh, so when the volcanic eruption erupts and ash settles, uh, it can, you know, it rests on the slope of the volcanoes and the craters and so on. And if you have extreme precipitation after that, it can create these devastating mud flows. Uh, it's one of the main causes of, uh, of uh, volcanic related death uh, in the world. Even though it's not a direct volcanic hazard, it doesn't happen during the, the eruption. It can happen days after, weeks after, years after. Uh, uh, but yeah, uh, and so they are related to the ash deposit combined with extreme precipitation events. Um, and, and so they are also climate dependent. Uh, it's fascinating. Um, I know I know you have, you're saying you're sort of a volcano person above the ground, but it seems less often that people are surprised that there has been a volcanic eruption, although occasionally it does happen. Do you know much about the sensor network for volcanoes? Sorry, so is the question what the sensor network? So the network? question is, yeah, is is how, how do we does it become we... increasingly less surprising to have a volcano erupt and not realize that it's going to erupt? <sighs> it I would say it does become less surprising. Uh, and, and until it doesn't. Uh, so certainly have, you know, uh, some volcanoes around the world are more and more equipped uh, with uh, a bigger variety of techniques to monitor them. So maybe one of the most important one is seismometers, you uh, record uh, uh, ground shakes, uh, but, but we have a lot of technique uh, these days, including gas measurement, uh, we can measure change in ecosystem, uh, we can measure slow deformation of the ground, so not the kind that would trigger earthquake, but just slow inflation by a few millimeters of a volcanic edifice, which might tell you about how the magma chamber is growing and so on. 
the problem is that not uh, all volcanoes around the world are monitored. Uh, and so how quickly uh, you can react to sign of volcanic unrest uh, is still very volcano dependent. Um, the fact that we have a lot of monitoring capability in space now is helpful, but uh, we still need people to extract the data, analyze the data, uh, and you also tend to look where you think there is a danger and big volcanic eruptions tend to come from volcanoes that you know we thought were pretty much inactive or dormant or for example Pinatubo I forgot how many years it had been before it erupted uh meaning between the 1991 eruption and the one before but uh, on top of my mind it was on the order of thousands of years so uh, if you had asked at the time where the next big eruption would be I'm not sure anyone would I would have told you Pinatubo. So yes, we, we definitely have better capabilities, but uh, it is extremely, it remains extremely challenging to predict volcanic eruption, especially at the many, many volcanoes around the world that aren't uh, perfectly monitored. So do you think that's down to, um, I mean, the science is incredible that's out there at the moment and the, the remote sensors in space are amazing as well. So do you think that the lack of observation is just simply down to funding or interest or you mentioned the capability to actually process the data who yeah. is it that is it that a government isn't interested in that type of thing or there's an organization not in you know no it's simply not a lack of interest uh so i would say funding for sure pay usual and the easiest way to see that is to you know, for example, look at the US or Italy with Etna or Iceland, where overall volcanic systems are all extremely well monitored with a lot of capability, a lot of staff devoted to it, uh, versus other countries, um, say in Africa or uh, I was going to say South Asia, like there, there has been, I think there's been a big increase in monitoring capability uh, over the last decades there. but. But you can definitely see regionally how much the how much funding plays a role in monitoring volcanic hazards and and preventing that essentially. And then in terms of lack of interest, I wouldn't say government are not interested, uh, but volcan volcanic eruptions are not one of the uh, one of the main hazards around the world. Um, when you look at number of uh, death and damage caused things like earthquake or floods or heat waves uh, are just orders of magnitude uh, more more important um, so in a way it's fair game that you know there's not as much investment in volcanic research than um, than other type of hazards but uh, if you ask me I would say it's still pretty uh, pretty underfunded um, especially in the case of some volcanoes at local scale, because we know if even small volcanic eruption can trigger, uh, can, you know, can have devastating consequences locally. And then having a big eruption, something like the scale of 10 times Pinatubo happening by the end of the century, it's not a low probability event, it's one chance out of six. So essentially roll over dice uh, and such eruptions would have uh, global, uh, global catastrophic impacts. Um, and I think we are very much unprepared for that. So we've spoken quite a lot about the impact that volcanoes can have on the climate or vice versa. 
Um, but obviously weather can play a part as well, particularly following a volcanic eruption. I mean, a lot of people in the UK might remember the time when loads of flights were um, diverted because of that massive, that long eruption that was going on in in, um, in Iceland. So is there ways that the weather plays an impact following a volcanic eruption as well? And what sort of things do we need to keep an eye on? I know, I know colleagues that were monitoring the weather very closely following the eruptions in Iceland at that time. Yes, yes. I mean, uh, in, in the UK, the government agency in charge of monitoring volcanic hazard is the UK Met Office. So it tells you something about how incredibly important the weather, uh, the weather is. And the reason it's so important is because most of volcanic hazards come from explosive eruption that produce ash cloud. And, you know, the volcanic process is about injecting the ash in the atmosphere. But once it's in the atmosphere, it's all governed by, uh, by weather. So this is extremely, extremely important. Uh, so wind is wind patterns are gonna uh, govern where the ash cloud uh, ends up, uh, and things like precipitation is gonna control how quickly the ash cloud might be washed out from the atmosphere. Uh, so you are completely correct. Like once ash is injected in the atmosphere, uh, a lot of it is without control. Um, and when we're talking about impact of climate. On volcanoes, uh, you know, climate is just weather statistics. And uh, for example, when I'm looking at how future climate change might affect the average uh, dispersion of volcanic aerosol around the globe, it has a lot to do with just the average weather condition, you know, warmer earth versus colder earth. Name of that volcano was Ayafertliokul because I had to learn <laughs> how to say it, and it has not left my head. Um, I'm just wondering, actually, that you, I mean, this might be quite a random question to ask, but do you know the furthest ash has travelled, like, from its source? Like, where's the furthest it's been reported to have been deposited? Yeah, so uh, um, I forgot the, what the precise number is, uh, but four hundred thousands of kilometres. Uh, and whatever number you find in the literature uh, will be an underestimation uh, for two reasons. Uh, first, the ash particles that travel the furthest uh, are what we call cryptotephra. They are very small, so they are very hard to find once they settle underground. Uh, and the other reason is that uh, the higher the volcanic plume, the uh, furthest the ash travel. And most of the big eruptions that send volcanic plume very high are also far into the past, uh, which means deposits have eroded more and it's harder to identify uh, what eruption and ash particle was associated with, and so on. So that makes it uh, that makes it harder to answer your question. Uh, but for sure, thousands of kilometers, uh, and uh, from observation in the atmosphere, for example, we know that ash particle can stay there for months uh, in the stratosphere, where winds are really, really fast. Um, so it's quite possible that an ash particle could circle the globe uh, a few times before actually falling, uh, falling back down. That's so interesting. I've always been interested in volcanoes and 
um I've been to Gemma, Iceland. you're interested in everything oh well, hurricanes, but, uh, but volcanoes, i am <laughs> i'm really climate. interested in volcanoes Football, last, cricket. <laughs> last year i went to iceland um i went to a museum just about volcanoes as well so but after this yeah. conversation i'm even more fascinated by volcanoes and i'm gonna have to do go and do loads of research now <laughs> reading well, up Gemma, on I, ha- I hate to burst your bubble but we're gonna have to move on to the get to know me round with Let's thomas <laughs> thomas we have a couple of questions that Gemma has very carefully curated and prepared. Gemma, take it away. It's all about volcanoes, right? <laughs> no, 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 nothing about volcanoes. <laughs> Although we could, we could ask you what's your favourite volcano, but that isn't well, on the list. It's not on the list. <laughs> we always start this round by asking everyone, uh, what's your favourite season? And why? Oof. Uh... It depends where I am. <laughs> if I was if I was living in Tucson, Arizona, where I'm calling from, uh, my favorite season would likely be spring uh, because you can actually live there, and it would certainly not be summer because uh, with heat is crazy there. Uh, but I, you know, I would say summer. Uh, I'm quite a boring person, and living in the UK and before that, I was in Vancouver. So summer is definitely the best. Um, so yeah. I will forgive you for that because clearly spring <laughs> is the best season of all time. Just saying. actually in the UK, it's quite true. Like what the Easter weekend is always stunning in that country. Like where, no matter where I've been, I've been in Wales on Easter and had a perfectly cloud-free day on top of Mount Snowdon, and we were expecting rain. And you know, you yes, obviously didn't get your weather forecast from either me or Gemma, by the way, if that's what you were expecting, <laughs> because it would have been correct. <laughs> I will ask you next time. <laughs> yeah. What's your favourite type of biscuit? Uh, I would have to say chocolate chip cookies. Yeah. That's a good shout. That is a good that's shout. A good shout. Me and Gemma are nodding wildly here. Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you're doing more than nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Just sat here thinking, oh, chocolate chip cookies and a cup of tea, that would go down very nicely right now. <laughs> if you had to choose between a trip to the beach or the trip to the mountains, which would you choose? Um, Montaigne, yes. Which is what Vancouver is an amazing place. You don't have to choose. <laughs> That's this a good point. So That's a really good point. No, I've always wanted to go there. I will get there one day. If you go, you have to yeah. go to Vancouver Island. It's really lovely. Oh yes, really nice. Although I did Agreed. come face to face with a with a bear. That was a bit scary. Was but... it black bear or grizzly? It was a black bear, bear, and it sort of crossed the okay. path as we were coming down the path, and we were just like, okay. oh, oh. And it just looked at us uh, and just carried on walking. Like, so okay. nice, though. Yeah, it was beautiful, but I was yeah, I was pretty scared, but. We're all okay. It's okay. Um, <laughs> if you were a fruit or vegetable, what would you be? Uh, I love strawberries. So go for strawberry, maybe tomato and aubergine. Okay. One of these three. <laughs> Why would you be a tomato? Uh, I, no reason. They're just uh, fruits and uh, vegetables that I love. So. Yeah, but there's something about them that you must resonate with to pick them. Ah, uh, yeah, okay, that 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 too. Um, I I was called tomato a lot uh, in kindergarten. <laughs> <laughs> I guess you know that's what kid came with Thomas tomato. 
So, so there you go. The tomato it is. <laughs> they are great and they make a great soup. Exactly. Yes. If you could have a superpower, what would it be? Oof. Um, solve poverty, inequality, <laughs> and so on, just by clapping my finger. Is that allowed? Or, yep. Um, yeah, that, that would be for the, the rational one and otherwise maybe flying would, would just be cool. They're both great powers to have. Yes. We've got two more questions for you. The next one is, if you could invite one person to dinner, it can be anybody at all from any historical time frame or even a fictional character, who would it be? Ooh, um, I think I would go for someone from the Greek mythology, uh, hoping that all their stories are true, maybe Ulysses or, uh, yeah, yeah, let's say Ulysses, or maybe Pythagore as well. But I just get one. I mean, Pythagoras obviously is a mythological, but yeah, I'm just thinking ancient Greek. So fascinating to see was anybody actually doing anything that we think that they were doing, but they may not have been. Who were yeah, these well, people? I told you I'm a fake volcanologist. <laughs> <laughs> and our last question: We normally ask people what's the one thing that they wish everyone knew about the weather. Um, but I'm going to ask you, what's one thing that you wish everybody knew about volcanoes? Hmm, tricky one. Well, I'm, I'm just going to go with volcanoes can cool climate, I guess, because that's what I'm working on. Uh, I would have found that question easier weather-wise. <laughs> yeah, I think... You can answer you the weather what? if you want. You can answer what's one thing you wish everyone knew about the weather as well, if you want to answer that one. Oh, <laughs> uh, you know, just, just that global warming is great. And, yeah, which most people know these days, but still not think, enough. I think I've taken away lots from today. I didn't know that uh, climate can impact volcanoes. That's a big one for me. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. I didn't really connect the fast winds in the stratosphere with actually sustaining the particle in the air as well. And also, mm. I didn't know that water can leak into vents and cause a volcanic eruption and actually i'm wondering mm -hmm. if that is because is it volume which increases pressure or i think it has to do with how much uh, how much what do we call volatile so essentially gas there is uh yeah. in that magma system um and i think again that's, you know, we are talking below ground here, so I don't know anything. Uh, but essentially, I think that water being heated up by the magma and pressurize and uh, crack uh, the magma chamber, and that's what helps uh, getting an eruption. And we call this sort of eruption triatomagmatic, which means it was a mix of uh, external water and magma making the eruption happen. Very, really cool things. You should, everybody should know about volcanoes. So we like to ask all of our guests if they could leave us with something a little bit cool, a little bit that you could maybe tell your friends down in the pub. And have you got anything to tell us about volcanoes, a little volcanic wisdom? Mm -hmm. uh, well, because we're talking about a climate effect and aerosol, I'm going to go with uh, volcanic sunsets. 
So volcanic eruptions around the world make beautiful sunset, um, essentially because the gas and uh, particles that they inject in the atmosphere uh, make it harder for light to travel through, especially for light that has short wavelength, like blue light. Uh, so it means that when you have a sunset, even if it's quite cloud-free, uh, there is even less short wavelength passing through, more long, like wave, long wavelength, which make them uh, more red uh, and more beautiful. Um, and actually something really cool is that we can track past volcanic eruption in paintings by looking at how much red pigmentation painter used uh, uh, when, when creating their work. So yeah, we have very clear correlation between the pigmentation used and uh, volcanic evidence, for example, from an ice core. So and I just I say, that's, a pretty cool one. that's the coolest thing I've heard this whole podcast. That's the bit. That's my take home message, actually. That's so interesting. <laughs> that's so fascinating. Yeah. Wow. That is incredible. Don't you just love these? I've always said it. I say it on a lot of podcasts, but like observation is the key to any scientific creation. So somebody has observed this and thought about this. I just think that's fascinating. It's fascinating. Yeah. I wish it was me, but yeah, it's it's one of the. <laughs> Yeah, it's definitely one of the most like our inspiring volcano climate uh, fact. Well, if you know who it was, can you send them our way so we can get them on the podcast? <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I can try to. <laughs> I can send you the the paper because uh, yeah. Amazing. Um, I do have another favor to ask you. Could you tell us your other volcanic wisdom about lightning? Uh, so second fun volcanic fact is that volcano uh, produce lightning, which is perfect for a weather podcast. Um, and if if you just Google volcanic plume eruption on YouTube and you know look at the thumbnails of the video, it, I think you will see a few with lightning. And if you actually play the video, uh, yeah, it's quite impressive the amount of. Uh, long and short and uh, all the color intensity, but they put these volcanic plumes, they produce a lot of lightning. Uh, and the reason is that uh, in the plume, volcanic particles just um, collide with each other, which helps separating charges and which triggers all these discharges. Um, and they make up for beautiful pictures and video, hopefully, but it's also actually really useful to monitor volcanic eruption because we can detect lightnings from space. Uh, and when you have this burst of very concentrated high frequency lightning emanating from a single point, uh, it's quite distinguished, quite distinct from a, a full thunderstorm system uh, that can help, uh, you know, uh, detecting that an eruption is getting started somewhere with an ash cloud uh, rising. I love that. Pretty cool. That was brilliant. It's so fascinating. So fascinating. I mean, we found this evening fascinating chatting to you, Thomas. So thank you so much. If people want to go and follow you on social media and find out a little bit more about your work, where's the best place for them to head to? Yes, uh, I'm a very old soul. I only have one social media uh, and it's Twitter. Uh, It's at Thomas J. Aubrey. T-H-O-M-A-S-J-A-U-B-R-Y. 
I should expect 2,000 more followers on Makeup. <laughs> <laughs> um, if they want to follow us as well on Twitter, that would be amazing. On Twitter, we are the number four love of weather. And on Instagram, we are for the love of weather. Um, and if we could ask you to please rate, review and share the podcast, it really helps other people find the podcast. And we would love to share our love of the weather with as many people as possible. Um, so, yeah, if you could do that, that would be absolutely brilliant. Um, and as always, we just hope that you leave this episode loving the weather just that little bit more. And don't forget climate science. We hope you leave loving climate science a little bit more as well. But thanks, everybody, for listening. And Thomas, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. I had great fun. We didn't pay him to say that, by the way. <laughs> <Cool>. <laughs>